0: Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. In a little while, I'll be speaking with legendary editor Robert Gottlieb, who was the editor-in-chief of Alfred A. Knopf and The New Yorker, and is the author of many books. His new book is called Avid Reader, A Life, and it's all about his life in publishing. to tell our listeners, in case they are not familiar with you, Robert Gottlieb has held many very important jobs in publishing. He was also the president, editor-in-chief, and uh, publisher at Alfred A. Knopf for many years.
1: Yeah, for about 20 years.
0: For 20 years. Among the authors he discovered, shepherded, published are, and it's a litany of 20th century fiction and nonfiction, Joseph Heller, Robert Stone, John Cheever. Robert
1: Stone, yes, but I wasn't crucial to his career, just thinking about it quickly. I would say definitely Catch-22, obviously Joseph Heller, Tony Morrison. I worked for years with John Cheever, Robert A. Caro, Barbara Tuckman, Doris Lessing. I don't know, it's endless. It really is. John McCarray, Michael Crichton.
0: You also signed up Julian Barnes when he was unknown, and I mean, you also signed up John Lennon before true. we met the Beatles, as we were, <laughs> right. right? Your book is called Avid Reader A Life, it's about a life in publishing, and you really talk about the essential art of publishing, which remains, I think, true today because the essentials don't change, even though everything else has changed, and I think that your book will be a great example for people who are just starting out and publishing young writers, whether it be on the web or in paper. Mm -hmm. Um, You say that publishing is essentially the act of making public one's own enthusiasm. And to me, that's the definition of making it human, keeping it anti-corporate. And what else can it be but human when you're talking about books?
1: And right, and that is what works. The nice thing about it is that it's both practical and it's, as you say, human. This is the way it should be, and this is the way it is. It's not always true. Mm -hmm. For instance, I think I may point out, I can't even remember, when you're talking about genre fiction, Mm -hmm. you work with a best-selling crime writer. That person has established a readership. And so what you have to do to publish it is make sure that the book gets to that readership, particularly now in the days of the web, that readership is waiting for that book. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to reinvent it the way you have to invent a new book by a new writer, or indeed invent in a sense of getting people excited about a new venture, a writer who has changed course. Versus with John Updike, whom we published from always, I was not his editor, but of course I knew him very well. And every John Updike book was more or less different. So you had to explain that difference. When you're dealing with a genre writer, that's not the case. Your job then is to let the largest number of that genre writer's readership know that the new one is there for them. And today, with Amazon pre-ordering and with the web announcing everything, you get a gigantic bunch of people buying the new one instantly. Whereas with a book like All the Light You Cannot See, which Mm -hmm. has been a bestseller for over two years, nobody knew about him. Nobody was really aware. That is a book that had to build and build and build and did, because its own virtues created a readership and has continued to create a readership, and that's word of mouth. It's a different process.
0: Yes, and both of those processes are still going on today. Absolutely. uh, I just want to go back to the beginning of your career when you were hired by Jack Goodman at Simon Mm -hmm. & Schuster, and then two years later he died—
1: Two years later, he died.
0: And then you said there was no ladder. You just did what you felt you needed to do. There was kind of a vacuum, and you created your job, and you had an enthusiasm for every single aspect of publishing.
1: I honestly did. But Uh, it wasn't just me. It was a bunch of us, whom I was by far the youngest.
0: Right. And, of course, Nina Bourne, who you famously went to Knopf with. And and I don't know if you remember, but I was actually working at Knopf in the Uh 80s. I worked in the publicity department for a couple of years, and then I went to work for Bobby Bristol for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So I was there, and I saw it, and it was very exciting. It was a real privilege for me. I learned a tremendous amount. It was an amazing time in publishing. But let's just go back to Simon & Schuster for a minute. So you're doing all of it. You're signing up books. You're editing them. You're selling them, which means you're looking at the jacket art. You're looking at the jacket copy. You're looking at the the pricing.
1: Yes, right.
0: Yes, the size of the printings, the titles. And right. all of this is exciting you. And you're doing things that people had not done before. For instance, selling to a film studio before the book is entirely finished.
1: That was completely new, yes. Right. But that wasn't my doing. I just was part of it.
0: Well, you know, it's not a coincidence that you were a part of so many things. No. Let's see, also putting an author, Rona Jaffe, on the cover of the book. I think that was the first time that was done. It was indeed. It just sounds terribly exciting and romantic, To think about that time, and I also do think there's a parallel to today and to young people who are trying to figure out publishing in this whole new world, where there's so little money on the internet, where they have to do everything themselves.
1: Yes, it's true. On the other hand, from the other aspect of my professional career was editing, and that hasn't changed. I mean, the technology has changed. We can now do it on our screens by intervening in the text instead of sitting with paper, which is now called hard copy, I don't know why, and making notes in the margins, although I still do that too. But so that technology has changed and maybe speeded up the whole process. But the reality is young editors, old editors, I think I'm now the oldest functioning editor in the publishing business in America, because I'm 85 and I'm still editing, we're still doing the same thing. We're reading a manuscript or reading it online, We're taking notes, whether they're on the page with the pencil or whether it's on the screen with whatever device you use. It's the same thing. We're thinking about the book. We're talking to the writer. We're trying to make the book better of what it is, closer to its platonic self, if you will, if you want to be fancy, which I usually am not. so it's the same and I see young editors you know, I'm tired of hearing from people in or around the business, there is no editing anymore. It just isn't true. I see young editors ardent about their books and helping and being useful to the writer because this is the message. And you know, I speak every year at the Columbia Publishing Course mm-hmm. where you know a hundred hopefuls gather together, they have workshops, it's a wonderful thing. But then I give a kind of, I don't know, old man keynote address. (laughs) And what I try to emphasize again and again and again is that editing is a service job. You're there to serve the writer and serve the text. It's not an ego thing. It's not an agenda thing. You shouldn't want to have your handprints all over the final result. What you want to do is be of service to the book and the writer. Publishing, you also have to be at the service of your publishing house, because to stay alive, you have to publish successful books and make a profit, or what's derisively called a profit. Those are two very different things, and fewer and fewer people today are doing both. I was very lucky, because I was able always to be the editor, the editor-in-chief, and the publisher. So it became one thing, and the business person. It kept me busy, I'll say that.
0: You also were the master of figuring that the non-textual aspects of the book could be absolutely essential in its life. I'd like to say that without you, we'd be reading Catch-18 instead of Catch-22, and we would be reading Hitler's Nightmare Empire instead of The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich.
1: That's exactly right.
0: And those things are terribly important.
1: And, See, and Jackets are important and copy is important. The thing about publishing is that no matter how long we've been doing it or how successfully we've been doing it, we don't really know how it works. You cannot point to one element of it and say, this is going to make the difference. Sometimes the title is crucial. Sometimes it's something else. Sometimes it's pure luck. The right reviewer Catches it for the right publication at the right moment, and a book that didn't seem to have a large chance suddenly can explode. So, since you can't isolate the crucial element, you have to do everything right to your ability and to your understanding of what right is. So, there are a hundred things to be done on every book, and since a standard bigish publishing house can be publishing a hundred to hundred and fifty to two hundred books a year. You can imagine how many things that involves. So you're hopping around, uh, lighting (laughs) fires to ignite success and putting out fires that are disasters that emerge all too often.
0: I'd like to just go back to one of your first tremendous successes, Catch-22, because it so illustrates what you say about your personal enthusiasm being made public. You were working with Nina Bourne, who was... Advertising director, and...
1: But that means nothing. Nina was the spirit of everything.
0: Right, and I remember her very well. And she sent out what you guys would call demented governess letters.
1: That's what she called them.
0: Yes, which meant that...
1: Well, the way she put it was, she was like the demented governess who believed the baby was her own. (laughs) Yes. When she was in love with the book, she would write scores of personal letters to people around the industry, people outside in the world, other writers, critics, who knows who... Her letters were so wonderful and so personal and so clearly came from a charming and careful and honest intelligence that people would respond. And with Cats 22 we were both out of our minds, mm-hmm. trying to get the world to understand that this book by an unknown writer was really special and important. And, you know, it worked.
0: And a technique like that can still work today for a Brand new press. But I have to read this one letter that uh, you guys got from Evelyn Wall when you sent yes. Catch 22 out to just name, to everyone. Nina, n- or, or, um, to Nina did. Nina did. Right. But she sent it to a long, long list of people, just whomever, right? Because anyone right. might respond. And indeed, Evelyn Wall responded and he said, Dear Miss Bourne, thank you for sending me Catch 22. I'm sorry that the book fascinates you so much. It has many passages quite unsuitable to ladies' reading. <laughs> It suffers not only from indelicacy, but from prolixity. It should be cut by about half. In particular, the activities of Milo should be eliminated or greatly reduced. I'll skip to, you may quote me as saying, quote, This exposure of the corruption, cowardice, and incivility of American officers, will outrage all friends of your country, such as myself, and greatly comfort your enemies. Yours truly, Evelyn Wall. Did you actually end up using that quote
2: at all? No, we should have
1: now, in (laughs) retrospect. We were very amused, and certainly no one was offended, including Joe Heller. I think he felt honored to have received this attention from such a fabulous writer. But we didn't have quite the nerve to put it in (laughs) time.
0: Do you think that he was an all-tongue-in-cheek when he wrote that
1: I think, probably, he was chiding us, slapping us on the wrist, and expressing his real views. You know, he was a very violent conservative, and I'm sure he did believe that this was an unpatriotic act.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. Tracy Tynan has come back to the studio. Hi, Tracy. Lovely to be here again. She was here earlier. We were talking about her riveting autobiography, Wear and Tear. And now she's back to recommend a book for us?
3: Well, I feel in these dire political times, there's real need for some humor and some levity. And so I have gone back to one of my great old favorites, which is P.G. Woodhouse. And he just delivers like no one else. I just finished reading Code of the Worcesters. And they're just so charming and funny and It's so strange. They seem so relevant today. Interesting. (laughs) Because it's just people behaving badly and trying to get away with stuff they shouldn't get away with. It's a weird thing. As I'm reading it, I'm thinking all the plots are kind of virtually the same. It's all about the hapless Bertie. Okay, so Bertie is a wealthy,
0: idle, young...
3: An upper-class twit. An upper-class twit. (laughs)
0: Thank you. Yes, that's what I was trying to say. And then his butler,
3: Jeeves... Yes, is the brains of the operation. And basically, Bertie would be lost without him. But at the same time, Jeeves is not entirely infallible. And he sort of makes mistakes, and Bertie gets to pay for those mistakes. But then Jeeves corrects, and it all works out fine. And I think the thing that's wonderful about them is that everything does work out in the end, but it takes these wonderful twisting paths. And of course, they're old fashioned with their ideas about women in certain ways, but the women are actually quite strong. And in the end, they kind of rule the the roost. Mm -hmm. And Bertie is just left kind of standing there, throwing his arms up in the air.
0: Yes, they're wonderful. There's several collections of the Jeeves stories. Yes,
3: I have one very thick hardback that's all the short stories. You know, it's this sort of PG Woodhouse omnibus, and that's wonderful because they're very short and they're lovely things to read just before you go to bed at night. You know, to transport you to another world.
0: And he also had quite an interesting twentieth century life. It's funny; I was just thinking, my stepdaughter Jessie, her favorite author is PG Woodhouse, and her uh. other favorite author is Edward St. Alban. Quite a different flavor. Do you see any similarities between those two?
3: Well, I think it is dealing with upper-class people and, to repeat myself, behaving badly. Mm -hmm. I love that your daughter likes that P.G. Woodhouse lives on. I was just at a bookstore downtown of secondhand books, and I said, do you have any P.G. Woodhouse? And he said, we can't keep them. As soon as we get them, they go out. I thought, oh, great, yay! That's amazing. And he
0: also wrote, we should say, just because I always like to plug musicals, The Princess Musicals, a very famous couple of years in the 19-teens of light, beautiful, witty American musicals that would pave the way for the American musical.
3: Multi-talented, super smart guy.
0: Underrated, in my view. So charming. (laughs) Thank you so much, Tracy, for coming back. Thank you. We are talking with Tracy Tynan. And her book, Wear and Tear, The Threads of My Life, is out. It's a fascinating autobiography. We highly recommend it. Thank you so much. And now back to our interview with Robert Gottlieb. It was interesting when you write in your book about when you went to the New Yorker to be the editor-in-chief after heading Knopf for those two decades. One thing that jumped out at me that I found interesting was in the publishing world, you could have your hand in all aspects of selling the book, marketing the book. When you got to The New Yorker, one of the things you encountered was, well, first of all, it was such a bizarre atmosphere that you encountered because it had been ruled by one man for many years with a very particular kind of personality. In a way, just as the way you had ruled Knopf with your personality, Mr. Sean was ruling The New Yorker with his, and so you walked into this kind of a rarefied world. Also, in journalism, of course, there is that wall between advertising and editorial, so you couldn't have your hand in everything.
1: But I didn't want my hand in anything at that point, because I knew nothing at all about magazine publishing, which essentially is selling ads. I wasn't capable of doing that or interested in doing that. The separation didn't bother me at all,
0: But you were instrumental in figuring out how to sell your authors in book publishing.
1: Oh, totally. Yes. It was my job because that's what the publisher does.
0: Exactly, yes.
1: The editor-in-chief considers what we should publish. That's his responsibility. The publisher's job is to make those books that we do publish, to bring them to readers, and to convince people to buy them. And the president's job is to make sure that the company does well and is well-managed. So those are three separate jobs, but I enjoyed all of those. So I was very fortunate that my temperament allowed me to do all those things because there are some wonderful editors, wonderful, who are simply not managers. And there are brilliant presidents and money people who couldn't edit anything or even read anything. They're different worlds. But by the time I got The New Yorker, and I've been doing this for a long, long time, I didn't have that need anymore. I was very happy to do what I could to make The New Yorker better than it was at that moment.
0: Yes, and then you became a writer yourself after having edited so many great writers. You became a writer yourself, and you speak about it very humbly. You say you were concerned It was hard for you to conceive of yourself as that sacred thing, a writer.
1: Absolutely right. And also, writing is hard. It certainly is. (laughs) Face it. You know, editing for someone like me is normal, easy, natural. I read something and I immediately think, this would be better if we did this. That's simple. I have to apply myself. Of course, every editor does. But I didn't have to learn how to do it. I knew how to do it. Whereas writing is hard because it's trying to express the truth. And truth is not always easy to discover or express. So it took me quite a while to be able, even to write on it. People say, What is your work? and say, I found it hard even to say editor and writer. But then I realized that if you have written, this is my fourth, what I would call, real book, if you've written four books, if you've written 250 or more dance reviews, because I'm the dance critic for
2: right. the New York
1: Observer, if you've written. 25 pieces for the New York Review of Books and many for the New Yorker and the Times Book Review. You're writing, so I guess that makes you a writer. It just is a big responsibility.
0: And it's much more exposing as you... Much more exposed.
1: I've been stunned by the reaction to this book, really. Because I thought, you no, know, people interested would like it and be find something in it, and it's been much greater than that. So that's gratifying.
0: Well, first of all, the kind of humility of being an editor is reflected in your title, Avid Reader. I think mm-hmm. uh, it came from one of the headlines when you took over Knopf, one of the newspapers said, Avid Reader to Head Knopf.
1: Exactly right.
0: And you were anonymous in that headline.
1: Just, and should have been.
0: And to pick that for your book, I thought, was interesting. Then later in the book, when you write about becoming a writer, and then there were things you couldn't hide anymore. Yeah. And, and also the certain things that you had realized about yourself and the way you had operated in the world. I'm just going to read very briefly that you began to understand, you say, the level of my aggression and competitiveness and the extent I went to in order to hide them for myself. Yes, be the boss, but don't act like one. Yes, be offered better jobs and more money, but act to myself as if they didn't mean anything. And you write about how you got into Columbia because you really wanted to get into Harvard, so you didn't care that much. Right. At the same time, when you were interviewed by uh, Jack Goodman at Simon & Schuster, you weren't thinking of that house as the house that you wanted to be a part of, so you had less pressure on yourself, so you were able to shine, in, in a sense. But when you started writing, then you realized you were unable to pretend that you weren't asserting yourself. But I
1: wasn't writing. Yes. Since I couldn't write under a pseudonym, I had to announce myself and it was nervous making and it is and it should be because writing is a serious business.
0: Yes, and one can be publicly humiliated <laughs> very easily.
1: Absolutely, and I would prefer not to be at my ancient
0: age. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you just a little bit about a publishing before you came to Knopf or to Simon Schuster, and now the kind of like, if we look at it as kind of the three phases, I actually got to meet Mr. Knopf one time. When I was there in 82, he would come to the office once A year and he came in a bright yellow suit, like canary yellow, and uh, walked around with you and said hello to everyone. It really was like meeting someone from another century at that time. It was very exciting. But could you talk a little bit about what publishing was like in Alfred Knopf's day and then? And then also, when you talk about today and you say that editing has not changed, the essentials of editing has not changed, which I think is absolutely true, but I wonder if you've sensed, as I and a lot of my friends who are writers have sensed, that it is harder to get a good editor to do more than sign you up.
1: I just don't believe that. I really don't. I think there are editors and very well-known and established and successful editors whose main function is to acquire books and everyone knows that they know it and their owners or bosses or colleagues know it and then they have either assistants or junior editors or other kinds of editors who take over and Mm -hmm. do the actual editorial work there's nothing shameful about that as long as good editorial work gets done Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of people who are editing now you know i've been lucky because i've worked only for terrific places and i've never encountered stupidity, or laziness Mm -hmm. in the publishing atmosphere. And I don't know whether it exists or doesn't exist. Obviously, there are more capable editors in one place, and fewer there. It varies from moment to moment and from firm to firm. But I do believe editing is going on. And another thing that's happened, which was absolutely unknown in my day, early days, was that agents have taken on more and more of the tasks of an editor. They often supply writers, particularly beginning writers, with a great deal of editorial advice. So that by the time it reaches an editor, particularly we're talking now about a first book, it's already had a level of editing.
0: That's true. The agents have stepped up. They've had to step up, and they have stepped up.
1: And they charge more.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's right. They do. But it's 15 instead of 10. Yeah. I wondered if you could talk just for a minute about writing for the New York Observer, because Jared Kushner bought the Observer before he was married to Ivanka. He bought it back yes. in 2006, and he marries Ivanka in 2009. Have you yourself had to experience any sign of the publisher at work? when you're Oh, writing for not that? at all. Okay, so that's just completely There's separate. nothing.
1: First of all, since I write about dance, mm-hmm. which is a specialty, nobody much cares. I mean, they want You know, I have a name, a certain name, a certain reputation. So I think that the Observer thinks that's good for them. But no one would dream of suggesting to me that I should do this or couldn't do that. As I say, it's not important enough to begin with. But I feel that, look, the Observer has a number of very liberal writers or has had through the years. And no one has, as far as I know, tried to stifle them. I mean, that would really be a disgrace.
0: Well, but you've seen the stories that they've done on enemies of Trump. Uh, oh, sure. Those are not in the editorial pages.
1: No, but there was a woman there who worked there, still works there, who got very distressed about... Uh, yes,
0: I remember that. But yes, remember that. Yeah. The
1: Jewish things. She had her say very publicly. Mm-hmm. And Jared Kushner wrote a right. long, long either op-ed or editorial piece explaining himself and contending with her in a very polite way, as far as I know. She was not harassed or fired or anything. I think that's a good thing. I do it because I do it. And Uh, that's why I do it.
0: I write criticism. I understand completely. It's just such an extraordinary moment right now. And I wanted to ask you about that. Since we are speaking in October of 2016, is there anything that you want to say about how you're reading this election or this moment in time politically?
1: Well, I think we're all we people we know, one knows as it were, we were all holding our breaths in horror and terror, Mm -hmm. lest Donald Trump win by some horrible mischance. Mm -hmm. And I think at this moment, the way it's been going very recently, we're letting our breaths out and relaxing Mm -hmm. because it really does not look at this moment that short of some horrifying catastrophe that he has much of a chance to win. The real question is, if Hillary Clinton wins, will she be able to find a way to work with the Republican Congress if it remains Republican? I am very confused about Hillary because I happen to know her slightly, or I did, because I edited and published Bill Clinton's autobiography. Right. So since I was often up there in their house in Chappaqua, she would turn up from Washington. She was a senator at that time. Mm-hmm. So I spent a modest amount of time with her, and she was, as it were, my hostess. And I liked her she was pleasant she was competent she was gracious she couldn't have been nicer now that doesn't mean that she's a perfect person or that her policies or anything else are right i'm just giving my personal experience Mm -hmm. but what i do not understand i just don't is the virulence of hatred of her how that's been whipped up Because let's face it benghazi Do these people even know where it is and what Mm -hmm. happened there emails this is to make the obvious joke this is trumped up <laughs> and these are ways of trying to destroy her and vilify her what is that about like well, i just don't understand it well why, i think it's, it is
0: essentially mysterious misogyny anti-semitism yeah. i mean all of those things they are not but she's, she's rational yeah
1: she's not jewish what, why right. anti-semitism
0: no 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 i'm saying misogyny like anti-semitism oh, like or, anti-semitism yeah, yeah or racism i mean they're mysterious because they're completely irrational
1: and these poor Republican, or I don't even know what to call them, conservative people, first they've had to swallow a black president, <laughs> and now they may have to swallow a female president. What's left? Yeah. A transgender president? One hopes. What, what's, well, I don't <laughs> even hope or not hope. I don't care as long as the person is good. Of course. My president is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That's my president. <laughs> he was president when I was a kid, right. and I'd be very happy to have him back. <laughs>
0: I was thinking about when you took the assignment to write about Thurber for The New Yorker. And by the way, we should tell listeners that you are responsible for the hiring of David Remnick at The
1: Absolutely. New Yorker. Absolutely. I brought him to The New Yorker. So
0: New there York. is no end to your influence. When, that when you were writing about Thurber and I was thinking that he was one of the authors of Jack Goodman when you first started. And whom I then was
1: responsible for. Right. And so, after but that, Jack died. That
0: feeling of kind of coming full circle and, and yes. seeing all these patterns, it's kind of overwhelming.
1: But you see, if you live long enough and are active long enough, these things happen. It's a joke. Like my daughter called me up a couple of months ago and she said, Daddy, explain something to me. Why is it whenever I see your name in print The word legendary is attached to it. And I said, I can explain it easily. It's because I survived.
0: Yes. You and Stephen Sondheim.
1: (laughs) He lives right across the Turtle Bay Gardens from me. I'm looking at his house as we speak.
0: (laughs) I know. I remember it very well because when I worked at Knopf, that was when it was on 50th Street and we were right around the corner and... I have to tell you, I was there the day that Catherine Hepburn came in, and she was angry at you because she heard you were leaving for The New Yorker, and I was relieving the receptionist. I was actually sitting at the front desk when when the elevator opened, and Catherine Hepburn came off the elevator, and she just came up to me, and she said, Where's Mary Maguire? And I I wanted to say, who should I say is calling, but I didn't have the (laughs) nerve, but those were really extraordinary days off in the were. '80s. Also, I just wanted to tell you one more thing, which is that I'm writing a book about Oscar Hammerstein and the birth of the musical it's for Yale, and I'm very much enjoying your book about lyrics. It's very helpful. Thank you. And I've been through all of his papers at the. Are you talking Lever- to
1: Sondheim? Is he talking
0: Yes, I've talked. Yes, yes. He's he's talking to me. He's answering. He sends me cassette tapes of his answers to my questions. Which it took me a whole day to get a cassette tape player. Yeah, he's been great.
1: Yesterday I was thinking a lot about him, because I've been rereading the three memoirs by Agnes de Mille, which I'm yes. sure you've read. Oh uh, yes, I and have. And she is wonderful on the subject of Oscar Hammerstein.
0: She's the best, and she talks about them like they're human beings. Yes, uh, and they were wh- human. Beings. <laughs> yes, which very few people do. But Sondheim hates Agnes de <laughs> Yeah, and that's a whole other story. But yeah, they
1: all ended up hating Agnes. Yes,
0: they did. But
1: she was a wonderful writer, better writer than choreographer.
0: Interesting. I have to think about that one. I so appreciate your taking the time. Um, Oh, this is fun. Love your book, Avid Reader, A Life.
1: Great. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Thank you. Lovely to talk to you.
1: Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: We're starting a new series today. We are going to listen to poetry read by some very fine actors all from a recording called Poetic License, produced by Glenn Roven, who is a composer and a conductor and now a record producer.
4: He's got a company called GPR Records, and Poetic License is this three-CD set that I listened to in the car for a number of years and just love.
0: The actors are mostly known from theater
4: We will continue this series for a while, and we're going to pull some recordings from elsewhere, including, we understand, from the KPFK archives of people like Allen Ginsberg reading their own poetry. So this is to get us started.
0: And we'll continue the series until we get letters begging us to stop. Today's poem is called The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats. This is one of the most famous poems of all time. And for good reason, which I think you will understand when you listen to it.
4: You know, I never heard it before, but for you, poem is a two-syllable word.
0: What is it for you?
4: It's once, It's poem, and for you, it's poem.
0: Well, my father says film for film, so maybe it's genetic.
2: Or <laughs> maybe it's Baltimore. The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. A waste of desert sand, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs while all about it wind shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches toward Bethlehem to be born.
4: That was The Second Coming by Yeats. of course, one of the most famous poems in the history of poetry, read by Keith McDermott from the collection Poetic License, produced by Glenn Roven. It's one of those poems that I've heard a thousand times, I've read a million times, and it's still somehow hearing this reading made me think about it just slightly differently yet again.
0: It never gets old or tired. To the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and Questionable Moral Center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. Thanks to Robert Gottlieb. I'm Lori Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening.